Let's pray. God, please open up our hearts to receive your word. Go deep into our lives and, and just glorify yourself tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Wednesday nights. You guys might be getting tired of hearing me say it because I feel like I say it every week. But um, we're going through the Bible in a year and uh, as a church. And so if you aren't on the plan to go through the Bible in a year, we've got the pamphlets back there. You can pick it up. Tomorrow's October 28th, I think. So start on October 28th and dive right in and, and we'll finish out the Bible as a church. Um, but we're getting to, right now we're in the Gospels and we're getting to watch just who is Jesus and, and how does he interact with people and how, what does he want to say and, and do. And um, it's really just a phenomenal time. And then Wednesday nights we're, you know, taking just a little more of an in-depth look at a, a specific piece. Um, so this week, we found ourselves uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we covered Luke 2 through Luke some 18, somewhere in there. No. Anyways, Luke 2 through mid-Luke. Next week, we'll finish up Luke and get into the first part of the Gospel of John. Um, as we start the Gospel of John, um, pay attention to the word sent. Jesus is going to, uh, he has a little bit of an obsession with reminding us that he's sent. And just, just reflect on that as we're looking at the Gospel of John and getting in there. What is, what is the Lord trying to tell us about that he's been sent to us? But in the Gospel of Luke, you know, we get to watch just so much of who Jesus is. And Luke is a bit of a cool Gospel um, because it's not written by an eyewitness. Uh, Luke uh, is writing for a guy named Theophilus, uh, basically saying, here's what happened. You wanted a narrative of what happened, so I'm putting it together in two volumes. Volume one is called Luke, volume two is called the book of Acts. And, um, and there's all different kinds of theories, and, and you can speculate on what does that mean, and who is Theophilus, and all this. But Luke writes like, uh, like a court reporter. So he's gone to his witnesses, he's, you know, he's gotten witness testimony, and he's writing it down. And so it's an interesting account because... It's a little bit just how we approach the gospel as a whole because we weren't eyewitnesses. And so there's a sense where sometimes we can connect with Luke really well because it's not just, it's, it's strong, it's pieced together in a, in a way that's just very coherent um, and that, that's just very encouraging, I think, honestly. Um, so as we're going through, just real fast, um, I want to touch on it briefly uh, just for the sake of being equipped as believers. Okay, in Luke 1, uh, we, need, we need to know this as a church. Um, we need to know what the Lord thinks about unborn children. And so it's just going to be a brief tangent, but I think it's important. Uh, in Luke chapter 1, the angel comes to Zechariah and Elizabeth and says, you're going to have a son. And in chapter 1, verse 15, the Lord says, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And so the Lord declares that he is going to empower this child, John, who eventually becomes John the Baptist, with the Holy Spirit before he's born. And the Holy Spirit doesn't empower clumps of cells or inanimate objects, right? If you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, only if you are a person. So, you know, I know we as a church have a very clear stance on life and what does that mean, but sometimes it's helpful to have a point of reference, Right, and Luke 1 is very clearly just a great Christian point of reference, okay? If you're ever trying to figure out why exactly do we believe that life is sacred? 
Well, God declared that he could pour the Holy Spirit into unborn life. And then later on, he actually does. In verse 41, when Elizabeth hears Mary, uh, John leaps for joy in her womb, right? John experiences joy. Clumps of cells do not experience joy. Human beings experience joy. So that's just kind of a brief thing. I didn't want to spend the whole night on it, but I do think that if we want to be biblical Christians, there are sometimes pockets where we need to stop and say, okay, wait, here's what the Word of God says, and here's how it applies to us in our world. So that's one of it, one of those. Um, but if you would, flip over to chapter 7, and we're going to start halfway through chapter 7 in verse 36 tonight. I'm not totally sure how far we'll go, um, but, um, but I think there's just some good stuff here for us. Um, so, with that being said, we'll just dive right in. Um, in verse 36, it says, Now one of the Pharisees of chapter 7. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. Uh, that him is Jesus. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and of what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. So Jesus is traveling around. He's got a ministry. He's healing people and he's telling people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right. And he's finding himself at odds with a lot of the religious teachers of the day. And this religious teacher, we're not totally sure what his motives are, but he invites Jesus over for dinner. He says, hey, would you like to come? And Jesus says, sure. He accepts the invitation. And while they're there, um, this woman comes in. And it says, it's a woman in the city who was a sinner. And we don't need to elaborate too much, but if a woman has a reputation across the city for being a sinner, that probably puts you in a kind of a specific demographic culturally all right so this woman walks in to uh really a pretty uh a pretty high-end dinner right the pharisee in this community has just invited jesus to dinner this is kind of you know jesus having dinner with the mayor or with the governor or whatever you want to look at it and this woman pops in um now just to kind of help give us a little bit of cultural perspective uh it says, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she's standing behind him with her feet, and she begins to anoint his feet. So if you're picturing in your mind a table and a group of chairs, that's not what it looks like. And so just to help us understand, in an Eastern culture, and this is still this way to this day in a lot of places, um, they don't sit at chairs at a table, okay? They all have a very low table, and uh, you kind of lean on it on your left arm. You eat with your right hand, all right? And your feet all point out. Because feet in Eastern cultures are horribly dirty. Uh, They're a symbol of filth and they're literally dirty. Because this is a sandal culture in an agrarian society. So you walk on the same path as every every piece of livestock for a whole day and you have dirty feet. And so you keep your feet away from the table, right? And so culturally, you gotta understand then, here's what happens is your feet have to get washed. Uh, your feet are nasty, your feet are filthy, and somebody's got to wash your feet. And historically, that was saved for like the lowest person on the totem pole, right? If you had a group of slaves, it was the bottom slave, 
If you had a group of servants, it was the bottom servant. It was bottom status. You do not get any lower than a foot washer. And this woman comes in, and she starts to wash Jesus' feet with perfume and then with her tears, and she's drying them with her hair. And it's a very interesting thing because this woman is a sinner, and she just entered into uh, a fairly, you know, kind of a high-end dinner thing. But she didn't just, you know, she didn't say, hey, is that seat open? And then kind of slide into, you know, the main seat, right? She's standing in the back. She's washing somebody's feet. And so she's not coming in from a point of, uh, of prominence. This isn't her barging in to take credit or to, or to change things or to mix things up. This is her coming in to wash Jesus' feet. And that's significant because we're going to see, uh, well, as it goes on, Jesus is going to have to have a dialogue with the Pharisee who invited him over for dinner. And this is going to bear significance. So, um, but just remember, the woman is taking a place of, of humility. And Simon, this Pharisee, he says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. Simon, he's just kind of thinking to himself, you know, if Jesus really is who he says he is, and maybe part of the reason he invited him over to dinner was to try and figure out if he was who he says he is. If Jesus is really who he says he is, he would know that you don't let this kind of person wash your feet, right? Um, I would never, let the, you know, he's kind of saying, well, I would never let this kind of person wash my feet. But there's an interesting break in the logic, which is that nobody has washed Jesus' feet up to this point, right? So this high-ranking official invited Jesus over for dinner, and it was, it was, you know, hospitality in an Eastern culture is incredibly important. If you're a good host, you have somebody wash your guest's feet. That's just a given, right? And you might not like the person who you have washed their feet, but you're going to have somebody wash their feet. Jesus has dirty feet at this table. And this woman is coming in to wash his feet. And so this Pharisee says, you know, Jesus, if he really knew his stuff, he wouldn't be letting a, a woman like this wash his feet. But notice there's a breakdown in this guy's logic because if this guy knew his stuff, he wouldn't have let that situation arise in the first place. So in verse 40, it goes on, and Jesus answered and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. And Jesus said, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. So Simon's looking, thinking stuff in his head about this woman and about Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, Simon, I got a question for you. Hypothetical question. Okay. So there's two guys who owe money. One guy owes 500 denarii. One guy owes 50 denarii. A denarii or a denarius was basically one day's wages. So 500 denarii is basically two years wages. Uh, so call it for round numbers, eighty to $90,000. The other guy owes eight or nine thousand dollars, all right, and neither of them could pay, and he forgave them both. Which one do you think loves them more? Simon goes, well, I don't know, probably the one who owed him ninety grand. Jesus says, good job, good, you're doing this, right? And he hasn't given him any context yet. So, but then he goes on and uh, says, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, "Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet." But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. 
So Simon didn't even do the basics, right? Simon has said, you know what? Jesus can, I'm just figuring out if Jesus is legit. He can, he can take care of himself. He can do his own feet, right? I'm a Pharisee. Jesus, if Jesus is a prophet, Jesus can get something figured out here. And so he doesn't wash Jesus' feet. He doesn't give him a cultural greeting. Uh, you know, the kiss was the thing back then. I'm a fan of the handshake. But um, he says, you didn't even give me a kiss. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You didn't do anything, right? And he says, this woman is going above and beyond in, in what? In serving, right? This woman isn't going above and beyond in pushing for prominence. She's not going above and beyond in, you know, trying to make sure we all know who she is because it's been 2,000 years and we still don't know this woman's name, right? I mean, this woman was not going for prominence. This woman was going for one thing and one thing only, and that was she wanted to serve the Lord. And, um, and then he goes on. Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he was forgiven little, loves little. And then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. So, Remember, Jesus gave this parable. He said, okay, so one guy has, one guy owes uh, 500 denarii and one guy owes 50 denarii. They both get forgiven. Who, who's going to love them more? And he says, well, the guy who's forgiven 500 denarii. He says, right. It's fairly straightforward logic, right? So this woman has had many sins forgiven and she loves much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So Jesus gives an extrapolation from his parable. He says, those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who are forgiven little, love little. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, how much have you been forgiven? What's the amount? All, right? If, if we've been brought into the kingdom of God, we've been given salvation. And you've been given salvation, and I've been given salvation, right? And it's not like... You know, it's not like you were 80% lost and somebody else was 90% lost and somebody else was 45% lost. It's not you were lost and I was lost and they were lost and now we're all saved. So how much have we been forgiven? All. So there's a, so it's not that he's saying some people are going to be forgiven more than others. He's saying it's based on, in a lot of ways, our ability to recognize what we've been forgiven. And then he extrapolates it, kind of gives it the flip side, and he says, those who have been forgiven little, love little. How much had Simon been forgiven for up to this point? Well, put it another way. How much had Simon asked for forgiveness for up to this point? Simon doesn't think he needs the forgiveness of God, right? Simon is sitting there saying, this guy is not a real prophet. This guy doesn't even, this guy is so out of line with, with what we know is, must be culturally right and religiously appropriate that he's letting this sinner wash his feet. I would never do that. And Jesus says, you know what? You're incapable of love like that right now because you haven't been forgiven to that extent, right? So there's, a, so there's this breakdown here that's happening, and I think this is really critical for us to recognize as believers is that our love, you know, if, if we're, so there's kind of the baseline assumption of are you in the kingdom of God? Have you accepted Jesus Christ and been born again? Okay, if you haven't, do it. That's kind of, that's step one. If you haven't, you haven't been forgiven. And, you know, like we sang tonight, the wrath of God was satisfied. Okay, the wrath of God is a real thing, but we have no cause for worry or concern because we have been, the wrath of God has been satisfied in Jesus for us. 
who have believed. All right, so the wrath of God's been satisfied. So we'll kind of start with that base level assumption. But, for all, but once we're all in the kingdom of God, once we're all part of the family of God, if we have been forgiven much, we love much. So if we, then the flip side, um, if you love much, it means you're aware of that forgiveness. If you don't love, you've been forgiven, okay? But it means you don't perceive how much you've been forgiven. So we love in direct proportion to the amount that we are aware we've been forgiven. And this is, you know, this is easy to lose sight of because all of a sudden, well, wait a second. So if I'm not a loving person, then what does that mean? Well, okay, so first, so let's just assume I'm a Christian who's non-loving. Well, John in his letter is in First John is going to say that's really a complete oxymoron. Right, But if I'm watching the op- actions of my life and I'm saying, man, I just don't seem to have a lot. There's not a lot of love. There's not a lot of love for other people. There's not a lot of just, you know, like how can I serve Jesus going on in my life? Well, then the appropriate question is, okay, wait, how much do I recognize what I've been forgiven? To what extent am I aware of what Christ has done for me? Right, Because we've all been forgiven much. So the only appropriate response is to then love much. If we don't love much, it's, it's because we're not aware of what extent we've been forgiven. So if we find ourselves short on love in life, which uh, I'm pretty sure applies to all of us at at least some point in some phase, then it's not that we need to fix ourselves. It's that we need to focus on what has Christ done? What does it mean that the wrath of God was satisfied? What does it mean? What, is, what does the gospel mean, you know? When, when my sins were crucified with Christ, and now it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What does that mean? What does Paul mean when he says that, you know, that Jesus is the firstborn to rise from the dead? What, is, what, is, what are some of these, you know, there's things that we say, there's things that we sing. We love the way they sound. We love putting them on our walls. But do we know what they mean? And if we can recognize that, it's going to impact the way that we love. And so it's a beautiful blend where all of a sudden, if we are lacking in love, we don't have to do more things for the gospel. We don't have to do more. We just have to be more. Be more in fellowship with Christ. We have to just abide more. We don't have to make ourselves love more. Right? What do we do? We focus more on who Christ is. And that is, that's super critical. And Jesus he goes on to this woman, and, um, and then he tells her, your sins have been forgiven. You've demonstrated your faith by your love. And this is what James talks about in the, in, the, in the book of James. James says, you know, you want to try and give me this whole spiel about you can have faith without works. He said, I'll prove to you my faith by my works. Jesus says to this woman, your sins have been forgiven, in verse 49, those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What faith did she have? Right? As we read it, we don't see any faith. We see an act. Right? But she demonstrated her faith by her works. Right? And so, again, it just is all, you know, you don't do good things because you're saved. I'm sorry, you don't do good things to get saved. You do good things because you're saved, right? We don't act 
to earn points with God. We act because he already, you know, won the whole game. And, you know, the scoreboard is already broken and it's all on his side, right? We don't act to earn favor. We act because we've received favor. And this woman has faith. Her f- she's saved by faith, right? Paul says it's by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. And Jesus looks at this woman and says, your faith has saved you, but it was an act that was the demonstration of her faith. So for each one of us, we all, it's just, I mean, it's easy to read, it's easy to say it. It's easy for me to stand up here and teach it on a Wednesday night. It's not as easy to live out on a Thursday morning, right? But we're given, you know, and we always try and we're balancing this where it's the grace of God and nothing else that saves us and brings us into his presence. But we have a privilege and a responsibility to respond to that grace by living appropriately, right? How do we demonstrate faith in Christ? By doing what this woman did, by serving Christ, right? How do we serve Christ? Well, we don't serve Christ by saying, okay, I would like to serve Christ in the number two position, right? We've been talking about this uh, last week with James and John. You know, hey, we would love to serve you as long as it means that we are in charge of everybody except for you, right? We are happy to serve as long as we set the terms. That is not what that means. This woman serves as a beautiful example of servanthood, right? This woman serves as the lowest position. She starts at the very bottom, right? She says, okay, I am a sinner in the city. Everybody knows it. So I don't really have an opportunity to, you know, I can't really throw a party for Jesus because... That would just that doesn't work. You know, I can't I can't do certain things for the Lord. What can I do? Well, I could start at the bottom. Right? I could wash his feet because you know what? Because an arrogant Pharisee invited him to dinner and didn't do anything for him. So there's a there's an opportunity for me to serve by taking the absolute lowest position that's so low that the Pharisee wouldn't even stoop to have somebody do it to Jesus. I can fill that role. Right? For each one of us, if we start looking for opportunities in the kingdom of God. We start looking for how can I serve somebody? How can I bless somebody? How can I minister to the least of these? How can I be the hands and feet of Christ? Right? We will find opportunities, and they may not always be fun. Sometimes serving the Lord uh, is honestly, it's kind of nasty work sometimes, right? But there is joy, and there is, there is incredible blessing and richness in it, okay? So, that's where we find ourselves at the end of chapter 7. Uh, we go on to chapter 8, and it says, Soon afterwards he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So we get another list here of other people who are serving. Some are serving by following. Some are serving by providing financially. All right? So he's not giving us this list of every Christian has to serve exactly this way. But every Christian has a responsibility to look for opportunities to serve. And then he goes on, and we're going to sh- sort of shift gears here. But in uh, chapter 8, verse 4, he gives us a very, very famous parable. And it says, When a large crowd was coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to them, He, that's Jesus, spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. 
Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So first of all, if you read this parable, you should know that it applies to us. All right, Because um, who did Jesus address it to? He who has ears. That's us, right? Each one of us in this room. I can see most of them uh, looking around. Right? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is giving this parable, but he just tells the story and then walks off. And his disciples, you get the sense that they're listening. They're like, wait a second. There's something else going on here. That's not just a good story about seed. Like, there's something going on here, right? And so his disciples begin questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So they're like, there's, is this some sort of hidden meaning? And he says, yes, there is, as a matter of fact. Because Jesus opens the invitation of the kingdom of God to anyone and everyone. But he also doesn't waste his invitations. Right? And so he gives out solid truth. But he gives it in such a way <coughs> that if a person has a completely hard heart, they can say, whatever. That was, just, that was a dumb story. If a person has kind of a cynical heart or maybe a softening heart, they can say, you know, that doesn't really make sense. I wonder if I'll have to chew on that. And if a person has a soft heart, they can say, wait a second. I bet he's trying to show me something. I'm, I'm going to ask him about it. Right? I, wanna, I'm gonna, I bet there's something there that I could glean from. Right? Which, parenthetically, uh, the question is, how do we approach the Word of God? Because right? if you approach it as a skeptic, you will find it an incredibly boring, incredibly just hard to understand book. It's, I mean, it's just like you get poetry in one section and history in another section and huge genealogies in another section. And obviously, it must all be bogus. It's made up by men. Or if you approach it with a cynical, you know, I mean, you can, you can approach the Word of God differently, and it will impact what you get out of the Word of God. So the disciples are saying, okay, there's got to be something here. And Jesus says, good job, guys. There is something here. So they have soft hearts that are still a little clunky, right? Which is encouraging, because uh, at least I have what I hope is a soft heart that's usually fairly clunky, right? In terms of understanding what the Lord is saying, what the Lord is doing. Uh, you know, it's not a well-oiled machine. It's, there's, always some, there's always some rust there. Um, but verse 11, he says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. All right, so Jesus says, okay, so this parable is a metaphor. The seed is the word of God. Boom. Okay, got it. So now we can look at it and figure out sort of what's going on. Who's the sower? He never says. And Jesus gives a whole description of what this parable means, and he never says who the sower is. Why do you think that is? I'm not positive, but if the, the, if the seed is the word of God, he's going to describe the condition of the word of God as it falls upon various people's hearts. But I think there's a very real application in that any, the sower is anonymous because the sower can be any one of us, right? Uh, the word of God is not limited to a specific branch of, of, you know, culture. It's not limited to a specific branch of education. You don't have to go through a specific amount of formal training or denominational background or whatever 
to sow the word of God. Anybody is a sower, can be a sower in the kingdom of God, right? Which is kind of awesome. It's a little bit intimidating, but it's kind of awesome. And he goes on and says, those beside the road, uh, or the seed that falls beside the road, are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So, the four different soil types are indicative of the condition of the human heart. And it's, it's really interesting you know, we, you get to see these lived out. On any given Sunday in this church, there's usually all four types represented here in the church. Um, and so he starts off, the first one is the hard soil. And these are people who, you, you know, the word of God comes, and it just hits, the devil takes it away, they just, it just never sinks in. They're, it's just like, nope, that was, you know, whatever, the music was nice, it was cool, see ya. There's just, there's nothing, it just, you know, it falls on deaf ears. And that's, that's a reality. That's hard soil. The next is rocky soil. Rocky soil is interesting. If you've ever seen something planted in rocky soil, um, it can, stuff can sprout. Stuff grows, you know, it gets those first two leaves off of every plant. It looks like it's coming up just like every other plant that's ever grown. And it'll do that for a week, two weeks, maybe. Depends on how big the rocks are. Depends on how many rocks there are. But sooner or later... It's going to choke out, right? It can't sustain itself because there's no room for it to root deeply. And some people hear the word of God and it's like, okay, I am, I am in, right? I am all in. I get it. I've heard it. And they, have, and they don't stop to let the word of God really go into their lives, right? And really work through the, the challenges and the background and the baggage and, and the things that they have let lock, hold them down. They don't, they don't allow the Lord to remove those things. And so uh, it says they believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, they fall away. Life is hard. Life will challenge anybody who believes in the Word of God. And there are some people who are totally all in for Jesus right up until somebody close to them dies. Or right up until they lose a job or they lose their health or something. And then it's just, you know what, I, don't, I, I prayed, and God didn't answer my prayer. Right? And... You know, I've known these people. I've, I've met them. Um, they're people who are happy to be all in as long as God does everything for them. But as soon as they need to exercise some faith themselves, it's like, you know what? God never existed for them in some ways. And it's, it's a tragedy, right? These first three kinds of soils are, are tragedies. But here's the important thing to remember. Each one of these soils can become fruitful soil. No soil is incapable of becoming fruitful. Now, we may not get to see it. We may not get to watch it bear fruit. But as the Lord works and orchestrates each type of soil, hard soil can become fruitful soil. It takes a lot of work, right? I mean, we have, you know, it's in harvest season right now, and you can see the tractors are going down the road. We have an industry that has figured out how to pack a lot of horsepower into machines because when you need to 
turn over hard soil. It's a lot of work. But the Lord can do it, right? So then he goes on to describing thorny soil. And it's so, this one's so interesting, and I think it's so relevant for our culture. These are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and the pleasures of this life, and they bring no fruit to maturity, right? Have you ever watched a distracted Christian? Or have we ever been a distracted Christian, right? Where it's like, man, I'm, I'm trying to focus on Jesus right now, but oh my gosh, you know, Monday's coming, and I've got a mortgage and a wife and a car payment and a couple kids, and, and I've got, you know, just so much going on, right? And I would really love to be more all in for the Lord, but I've just got a lot going on right now, right? Well, wait a second. Exactly how important is the Lord, right? If he, those who have been forgiven much love much, and, you know, and you demonstrate your faith by your works, if you're incapable of having a deeper relationship with the Lord because you're quote-unquote busy, then it's possible that maybe you don't understand exactly what the gospel means. You don't understand the depth of what it means and how it should impact you, right? And so this one is super relevant because we are in a culture that is perpetually distracted. I mean, our culture cannot focus on anything for more than 10 seconds because we are so much coming at us and we have so many temptations, so many pleasures, so many riches that we can, you know, if we can just read one more business book or if we can figure out one more thing, it's like there's all these things coming together, but we're just, man, you know, I just don't quite have, if I, if I worked on Sunday mornings, I could get a little more done, right? And we obsess, and what do these people do? They bring no fruit to maturity, you can flounder for a really long time as a distracted Christian, and there is no fruit, and it is a tragedy, right? And I said there's people, you know, honestly, there's people in our church every Sunday pretty much who probably represent these four types, and I can't judge for sure, you know, because I'm not God and all that, but there are people who you watch, and you watch them over the course of years, and it's like you are waiting for them to finally get it. And finally understand this is real and this is significant and this has eternal value, right? And, and it's, it's just, honestly, it's sad, right? I don't think it's depressing, but it's sad to watch somebody who should be getting it, right? Somebody who knows enough of the Word of God, somebody who knows enough, uh, who's had enough fellowship with the people of God, that they should be engaged with what God is doing and they just aren't bringing any fruit to maturity. And that's sad. And what's really interesting is he goes on, he says, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word with an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So good soil is what we all want to be, right? The challenge is, you know, we said any soil can become good soil. Good soil can also become any other kind of soil, right? If anybody who's gardened knows that you don't, have a perpetually good garden without effort, right? What do you do in a garden? Well, you got to remove rocks. You got to pull out thorns. It starts getting packed down. You got to plow it up, right? Because fruitful soil will become unfruitful unless it's constantly replenished, unless it's constantly made new and made fresh, right? And so for us, we all want to bear fruit. Well, that means we got to let the Lord pull out the thorns. We got to let the Lord pull out the rocks. We got to let the word plow us up. Plowing, being plowed under is no fun, right? It's kind of like being thrown under the bus. So you're being plowed under, okay? It's like, 
It's when the Lord does something. And it's zero fun. But Jesus says, if any branch bears fruit, I'm going to prune it. So that what? So that it will bear more fruit. He says, I'm going to, if you're doing great, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you more opportunities to grow. If you're a garden that's fruitful, I'm going to pour more fertilizer on you. Right? If you're bearing fruit, I'm going to prune you harder so you can bear even more fruit. And, you know, so we all get this, it's this kind of, it's not exactly a pep talk, right? Like, this is kind of like, oh, you bear fruit, congratulations, now you're going to get more, you know, the Lord's going to do more with you, but he's also going to bring more work in. Um, He's going to be working on you more. But also, just lastly, it says they bear fruit with perseverance. And that's super critical, because this is where it's important, you know, this is where you don't want to judge people prematurely and say, oh, that's a rocky soil, or oh, that's a hard soil, right? Because sometimes fruit takes a long time to grow, right? And fruit, you know, especially a lot of good fruit, you know, the really sweet fruit or the, you know, like the really good stuff uh, takes a while. And it takes, some fruits take a whole growing season, right? The entire season. Some fruits uh, have to winter over a year, right? It's about time to plant, if you're a gardener, it's about time to plant garlic. You put the garlic in the ground in October, and you don't harvest it till whatever it is, May or June. And all December, January, February, it's just a piece of dirt. And it's like, well, I think I put the garlic in there, right? Maybe I should, pl- you know, it's like, well, what do you, I think it's there, but there's no sign of it. And then about March or April, what happens? You start getting some green. And you're like, well, that's great. Now we have, you know, thin pieces of grass. Some of it looks just like weeds, but it's garlic. It's coming up, but it's taking time. And it goes a little bigger, it gets a little taller. And sometimes you wait some, you know, I mostly just reap the benefits of gardening and let everybody else in the family garden. But sometimes I'll help out. And with some plants, you actually wait till the entire plant dies before it's ready to harvest. Right? Some plants, you don't pull it out when the plant is green or else you'll totally ruin the fruit. You wait till the whole thing that you can see, till everything you can see dies. And then you dig it up. And that's when it's ready. That's when it's ripe. Okay? So if we're good soil, if the Lord's working in us, and you feel like, man, I just, there's no fruit in my life. I am trying to not be thorny soil. I am trying to not be rocky soil. And man, I'm just, I cannot, there's no visible fruit. Well, you know what? Sometimes, sometimes you got to go through winter. And that's, you know, and I say that not to be discouraging, but to be encouraging and to say, you know what? Sometimes there are seasons where things are hard. Sometimes there are seasons where it's like, what is going on? And the Lord would say, you know what? Spring is coming. It's coming. The fruit is coming. You stay in the Word. You keep letting the Word of God go into fruitful soil, right? You don't get anything out of fruitful soil if you don't put seed in. So if you want to be fruitful soil, you keep putting seed in. You keep letting the Lord put the seed in, take the thorns out. Put the seed in, take the rocks out, right? Along the way, we keep looking for opportunities to serve. We keep asking the Lord to open our eyes to how much we've been forgiven. We keep, you know not trying to put ourselves in a position of prominence, but saying, okay, I just want to respond because of what God has done, right? We do all that, and what happens? We bear fruit with perseverance. It might not be fast. It might not be glamorous, but we get to bear fruit. 
And here's the thing. We are guaranteed that we will bear fruit. Because the word of God does not return until it accomplishes what it was set out to do. If God has sent his word into your heart and you are letting it do what it is meant to do, it will bear fruit. That is a promise from God. And so it doesn't matter if it feels like you're not bearing fruit. Your feelings are the worst single possible means of gauging whether or not something is accurate. Right? It doesn't matter if it feels like you're bearing fruit. If the word of God is going in and God is working, you will bear fruit. It might be a season of winter. It might be a season of slow growth. Right? Some plants are sitting around there waiting to sprout while other plants are just putting out huge amounts of leaves. Right? Some plants look like pumpkins. They just they spread out all over the place. And at harvest time, you get like your one you know, golf ball-sized pumpkin. Right? But you ate up like hundreds of square feet. Some things, man, you can pack them in. You can get you know, buckets out of just a super small plot. But you might not see any of it because it's all underground. You might not see any of it, but it's bearing fruit. The Word of God is living and it's active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God will work in our lives. It will have impact. It will bear fruit. And we get to be a part of that process. We get to let the Word of God bear fruit. So, if you're hard soil, soften up. If you're, rock, you know, if you're, if you're rocky or thorny, let the Lord remove those things. If you're, if you're good soil, praise the Lord. Don't be discouraged, right? Just let the word keep going in. Just, you know, stay faithful. Keep letting the word of God do its work in your heart. So, that's it. All right, next week, we're going to get all the way to John chapter 2, I think. Um, and so let the word of God do something, right? There's a lot in the Gospel of Luke that the Lord wants to show. I think each one of us, I think the Lord wants to teach us stuff about who he is in the Gospel of Luke. So, uh, so keep your eyes open and, and be ready for the Lord to show you something. All right? God, we pray that, uh, that your word would go deep in our hearts. We pray that we would be fruitful soil, that you would just grow us. God, we, we hate getting the thorns put out of our lives and the rocks, but it's so necessary. So we pray that you would do that work in our hearts. Give us the patience and the endurance to keep looking toward what you're doing. We pray that you would fill us up with your Holy Spirit, that your power would just go deep into our lives and that we would uh, be equipped. God, we do pray that we would be sowers as well, that we would be spreading the word of God. We don't want to just absorb it. We want to spread it. We pray that you would give us the the boldness and the courage and the opportunities to, uh, to just bear in mind who we are as we're interacting with others and to, to bear in mind the power of the gospel as it's worked in our lives. So we pray that you'd have your way with us, be glorified in our midst, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.